And we're recording. All right, guys, welcome to episode three of The Unconventional Author. I'm your host, Nathan Obloff. Joining me today is, so this is a guy that I met a while ago. And if I could get to like a tenth of his level in this crazy publishing literary industry, I can call that a win. I can say, hey, I won life. Life's been won. He's uh, met Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, that the movie The Martian was based on. And he's also met George R. R. Martin, who wrote, um, oh, geez, what did he write? Hmm. It's on the tip of my tongue. He oh, was really popular. It was on HBO, made into a TV series. Oh, that's right. He wrote uh, A Song of Fire and Ice, uh, which is Game of Thrones is based off of. So everyone, uh, this is uh, Sebastian de Castell. Sebastian, how's uh, how's your writing been doing uh, during this whole crazy COVID times we're in? Good, actually. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, um, yeah, of I have to no problem. I have to correct you on one thing, though. Uh, I haven't actually met Andy Weir. Uh, I was at the Hugo Awards when he uh, won the Hugo for, I think it was Best New Author. So he beat me and because um, uh, I was nominated that year uh, and a few other, Pierce Brown and people like that. But um, he didn't actually show up to pick up his award. He sent an astronaut or two, which I guess you can do when you've uh, had a hit movie. Um, but, uh, to your other question, um, yeah, writing's been good for me, actually. Um, you know, when your full-time job's writing novels, uh, um, you're a bit privileged, uh, during times of pandemic privileged, both because, um, you can keep doing your work, um, you know, relatively unscathed, but also because your day-to-day -day existence is already kind of adapted to a pretty high level of solitude. Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married, so uh, I never lack for, you know, companionship. So, you know, we're together. So that's always good. So, so it's actually not been too bad for me. In fact, the, the really odd thing is that because I kind of pushed a couple of um, book deadlines last year, um, as January was starting up this year, I, uh, I, I, I thought I'd completely screwed up. Because, you know, I've only been sort of a, a novelist for about six years now, you know, the, my first book was published in 2014 and all of a sudden I didn't have a book coming out in 2020. And I thought, Oh man, like I, I just really screwed up my career here. You know, it's the whole year is going to go by where I don't have a book. I'm just going to get completely forgotten. And then the pandemic hit. And I remember then sitting down and going, Oh my God, thank heavens. I don't have a book coming out this year because you couldn't have a harder time to promote a book. Um, so it, so uh, as it turns out, it, it just works out that next year I've got three novels coming out. Um, so yeah, so for me, it's, it's been all right. I, I, you know, the hardest thing I think, um, when you're, when you, when your life isn't as adversely affected is just, you start to worry a bit about other people that you know, and how they're doing, you know, when you have family at a distance. So it's those kind of things that I, that I get hit with, but the, the actual work part being a writer, I've done a ton of writing this year and it's all gone fine. Yeah. Um, that's the thing with me this year was when the pandemic hit um for me it just kind of changed things up in life because i remember being at work and thinking like okay it's gonna be like this until i leave it's gonna be like this all year just the same shit over and over and over again. And then the pandemic hit and they were mentioning they were going to change things up shifts are going to be um 
staggered so that we don't have too many people on site. Um, I thought the site was going to get shut down and suddenly it was like, oh, hey, change. Excellent. Right. But um, during this year, I was, oh, I was getting really tired of doing it. I just wanted a break. And so when people started getting laid off or they just didn't feel safe and they got laid off, I was like making jokes with people like, when me, when is it going to be me, 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 me? Because like, it was weird. I was the one guy who wanted to take the time off and I was still working. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now, now I've actually quit. So uh, I'm going to be focusing on you know, being an author full time, hopefully getting this novel I've been working on forever uh, out there in the open. But yeah, people that have actually suffered, I mean, I, I do feel for them. It's not like I don't care about you uh, for certain. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, okay. So here's another fun fact about Sebastian, guys. So he's given me some pretty good advice. And I remember one time I sat down with him, we had lunch. I, um, had a bunch of questions I was going to ask him. I had like seven questions lined up. In one sentence, he answered all seven questions. And he said to me, he said, all that matters is the text. I mean, unless you've done something like horribly bad. But if you haven't, all that matters is the text. Who you are as a person doesn't really have any bearing on the success you have in this industry. Is, is that, did I interpret that correctly? Uh, well, I think, you know, when you and I last talked, I think the, 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 the two big sort of points, well, the two big points I always try to make is that the only thing that's real is the text, right? In other words, the book, right? When you, so, so very often, you know, people will think, well, um, you know, what did the author mean by this chapter or uh, is the author, uh, you know, really an expert, you know, neurosurgeon, um, but none of that really matters because, you know, uh, you could have the world's greatest expert on neurosurgery and they could write a book, a medical thriller about a neurosurgeon. And if the book's not dramatic and if the book doesn't feel credible to the reader, um, the neurosurgeon doesn't get to go to the reader's house and slap him around and say, are you crazy? I'm like the world's foremost neurosurgeon. How dare you not like this book? Um, and similarly, you can have someone who by all the kind of weird classicist, if you will, external metrics that we use to judge people, um, you know, where we sort of say, well, that person doesn't look like a professional author. They don't seem like they know a lot. Or when I hear them talk, they don't sound as eloquent as I expect them to be. But if the book that they write, however, they get to the, the to that finished text, you know, whether they, whether it's the first draft that comes out of them, or whether they spend months and months or years and years just trying to get it from total crap to something that's not total crap. In the end, of, at the end of the day, all there is is the text, right? And, and you know, not everybody sort of follows that kind of approach. Um, it's, you know, it's what's called reader reception theory, which is sort of the belief that the whoever wrote the book doesn't really matter because the, the real story only happens when the reader is interpreting the book themselves. Um, but that's sort of part of it for me. And the other part of it for me is just to that thing I always try to remind myself and, and other people, because you said something at the beginning that I thought was funny. And I thought it was funny because one, I'm sure it's going to happen. And then I'm sure you're going to discover just how wrong you were because you said, 
you know, um, when you, in your kind introduction, you said, um, you know, if I have one tenth his success, I'm going to feel like, you know, it was, you know, I kind of, I, I made it so to speak. Right. Uh, and the thing that the one thing that's really interesting about being a, a, a novelist, I find is that there is no level of success where you, where the first thing you do isn't to look one rung above yourself and go, God damn it. If I could just get up to that level now, you know, I remember when I, when I was first writing, like all I cared about was seeing my book on the shelf at chapters. And then you get your book on the shelf at chapters and you have like 30 seconds of total bliss and happiness. And then your eye wanders a little to the right or a little to the left where you see like someone with a name slightly similar to yours, who's got like three books instead of one book. And then you're like, oh, if I could just get those three books published. And then you know, you, you just think, oh, if I could just get nominated for one award and you get nominated and you lose. And then you're like, if I could just win one award. And I, I find it remarkable how much, uh, probably, hopefully not everyone's like this. Hopefully this is just like a vanity um, flaw in myself. But I find one of the hardest things about being a writer once you get published is reminding yourself that there is absolutely nothing that you are doing that is any more important or relevant than the 15 year old sitting in their, you know, uh, in their bedroom after school, penning their first novel that, you know, with stock characters and, and tropey plot, like nothing I do is more important than what anybody else is doing when they're sitting down to write. The universe doesn't really care. We're all just sitting there trying to, trying to create the best art that we can. So, so um, so I promise you when you get your first book out and, and you start getting positive reviews and you start seeing dollars coming in, the, you're going to experience those 30 seconds of total bliss before the universe slaps you upside the head and says, hey, look up there. There's somebody who's got a little bit more. There's a weird greed to, be in a, to being an author, and I don't quite understand why it works that way, but it seems to for a lot of people. Well, I think it's just you're always kind of like, I think happiness comes from not what you have but what you juxtapose what you have to something better so i mean okay so here's an extreme example is people live in first world nations you could say we're ungrateful for what we have because a person in a third world nation may look at like oh i would just like to have a house over my head that'd be great and we're ungrateful because we don't have that. But what it is that they're juxtaposing what they don't have to what they have. So the house looks great compared to what they have. Once they have the house, it might be like, well, the better house looks great to what I have. So what we're always doing is it's always you, you go after something. I mean, it's good to make goals and objectives to set yourself to that looks great to what you have. I mean, I've met people or known people that they have a good life. I mean, they make an excess of, they make six figures, but they say they're not satisfied. And I think it's because again, they're juxtaposing what they have to what they don't have. They're after the, it, it's almost like the thrill of the hunt. Once you get the, the duck or the, the prize, the hunt has gone away. So um, it's good to set yourself goals, but um, me personally, like I think you, you said, I'm going to look at what it, the next objective and um i've been having this really weird thing i've been doing lately right where i'm just i mean maybe it's me maybe it's people but i have this nasty habit of comparing myself to people and so i'm looking at the success i have 
now, which I don't really have anything. I mean, my website gets like less than 10 views. This uh, podcast has just started. But then you look at people that have like YouTube channels and they have an excess of a million followers. And some of the stuff they make is just like, it's like stupid stuff. Like, hey guys, look where I was eating today. Like really, like, like what I'm trying to get at is like my comparison of myself to them is really dumb. So I think, and I'm still working on it, but um, in the past week after I announced on Facebook that I'm quitting my job and so many people were happy for me, I said, this is, this is fine. I mean, I can always set myself a goal. I can always look at other things, but I shouldn't get, I mean, because it's just me, I have this downward spiral of just anger and like self-depravity that I just kind of get, it's very negative what I end up doing. And so I just sort of say to myself, okay, set yourself a goal, but um, if you don't get to where you want, it's okay. I mean, in terms of a person accomplishing this, it's fine. I mean, the ultimate goal you could say for us is to get to a point to where our novels are adapted into, again, an HBO series like George R. R. Martin. But I always think of the story of Icarus, where be careful how close you try to, don't fly too high or you might burn your wings off trying to get to the sun. And he had said that even though he got all his fame, it really fucked up his creativity. So I don't think any of us want that for sure. Well, yeah. So let's, so, so there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack there, but, um, and, and at its root, you know, we're talking about external sources of satisfaction and internal sources of satisfaction. And you said something earlier when you're sort of saying, well, you know, people who live in first world countries and, you know, basically, you know, products of sort of middle-class sort of kind of bourgeoisie, you know, uh, often have a lot of angst, but when you sort of compare that angst to people who are genuinely suffering around the world, um, you know, it, it always seems kind of trite. And, and that's absolutely true. And it's one of the things we all have to kind of learn to recognize because sometimes our kind of everyday privilege um, comes at a cost to other people. So we have to kind of learn about that. But on the flip side of that is, I always wonder, you know, if you, I think that there's a danger in that, which is that when we, kind of dismiss our own sorrow, whatever the source is, right? Um, then, then, then I think that's when we take risks with our own kind of mental health, because, you know, if you wire, and I'm gonna use this analogy a bit, but if you wire up the brain of some, I don't know, some, some middle-class suburban kid who says that they're miserably depressed and sad about their life and you go, well, you've got nothing really to be sorrow, you know, sad about or depressed about. And then you, you wire up the brain of someone who maybe lives in a much more difficult set of external circumstances. Uh, I'm not convinced that you're going to see in their brain waves and their brain patterns and where, wherever it is that we locate suffering inside the human brain, that you're going to see this radical difference. In other words, you know, humans have remarkable abilities for suffering as we have remarkable abilities for finding joy and laughter and, and things like that. So, when, so as a writer, um, you know, what I, what I think is interesting um, is that on that external level, on those things you can't control, which is, you know, you sort of mentioned, you know, um, getting a movie deal, right? So, you know, all those things, that's, you know, when I talk about the, 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 that there's always something above, right? Um, they're just on the external level, there just always is. So for example, Spellslinger, which is one of my series, it's a young adult fantasy series. It's a lot of magic and adventure. 
um, it got it got an, a movie option deal uh, recently that um, that we signed like a, just a couple of months ago. And, you know, there's so many people who are just writing me because um, it's got the series has quite a few fans and and I know lots of other writers and they were just like, oh, this is so fantastic. and so amazing. And I had to sort of explain to them, well, you know, an option deal is just like step one of basically five or six steps um, that all are kind of at, at some level guaranteed to produce misery. Right. So like. Um, for those, uh, hopefully, if this isn't of interest to your listeners, you know, just cut me off and let me know. But, but for writers who are wondering, like, what, how, how do you, how do, how does your, you know, book get turned into a movie? In basic terms, first is what's called an option. So that's where some producers come by and they say, look, we want to buy the exclusive rights to try to put together a package and financing to make a movie from your book. So they don't have any of the big money yet. They don't have anything lined up, but. They can't actually go and pursue it until they have an option. So they say, look, give us an exclusive option for a year or 18 months or whatever so that we can go out and try to get a director and an actor and a screenwriter and, and all this kind of stuff and, and, and big movie money. And then once you give them that, your, your odds of that succeeding are, you know, I don't know, one in a hundred. There's probably for every hundred options for a book, there's probably one that moves on. Um, the odds might be slightly better than that, but after that, then they still, then they get to like the develop, the full development stage where they've got some money and, and they're in a position to actually buy your novel. And so they buy that for a certain price. Um, and now it's like, well, now we can sit on that novel for 10 years if we want, or seven years before, you know, the rights revert. And if we don't make anything, there's not, you know, it's still locked up. And then if they go into production, you know, then there's like sort of more money and it's more serious money in the case of like a, a typical, I think what a relatively typical deal. And you have, you, you basically get like a percentage of their production budget, with what's called a floor and a ceiling. So the floor is no matter how little the production budget is, whether it's 1 million or 10 million or a hundred million, you're going to get this minimum amount of, let's say 200,000 bucks and uh, ceiling, even if it's, you know, no matter how big this movie budget is, the most we're gonna give you is let's say 400,000 bucks. And then they go and make that. And by the time you've reached that point, you're now like in the sort of one in 10,000, right? Who've, who've kind of gotten to that point. And then they're gonna make the movie or the TV show. And then the odds are so strong. I mean, I can't tell you how strong they are, except that anyone can figure it out. Just go watch a bunch of fantasy films made from books and you're gonna see how most of them are so disappointing and so awful. And then the author ends up feeling horrible, even though the author had nothing to do with it. There's nothing the author can do about making a movie. And uh, for the rest of their lives, the author lives with like, you know, the, the audience kind of saying all, you know, going, well, how come this movie was so bad? And why did you do this? And the, and the author's like, well, I had nothing to do with it. They just bought the book from me. That was it. Um, I mean, think of Lee Child, right? For those of you know, who writes Jack Reacher, right? So Lee Child's one of the biggest thriller writers in the world. He writes Jack Reacher. It's beloved by millions and millions of people. Um, sells the movie rights. They go make the movie with Tom Cruise. I mean, who wouldn't want Tom Cruise to make their movie? Except that Jack Reacher in the books is supposed to be six foot five or something, this massive figure yeah, of a man. Yeah, he's a guy. And Tom, Tom, Tom Cruise is five six. And so even though, and I quite like the first Jack Reacher movie, um, but you know, he, Lee Child gets people constantly asking, why did you have Tom Cruise do it? And it's, and it's so silly. And then even if you get past that, even if you get to going back to your original example, and sorry, this is a bit of a long rant, but I, I promise no, I'll do fine. it for soon. Um, even if you get to your Game of Thrones, I mean, how much more, how much happier could you get 
where you've got seven seasons of this amazing show and then still the eighth season turns out to not be as good as people would hope and everyone's left with a better bitter taste but even if that had been amazing even if you'd broken all the odds what's what's he left with he's got this amazingly successful tv series that has kind of as you sort of put it earlier and and i don't know george martin personally very well other than the one time i met him where we had kind of a funny encounter um but we're, you know, he, where he's sort of left, you know, with in a bit of a creative rut of sorts. I mean, I, I, I like I say, not knowing him personally, I can't say for sure, but one presumes given that he's had so much trouble getting the books done that he's in a, either a bit of a glut or a sort of a pre-retirement. So all that external stuff is all gonna get in your way. The good news is all that external stuff on the biggest day of its life is about 25% of the joy, of the possible joy an author gets. And the 75% of joy an author gets is when you sat down that day and you wrote something and something came out of you that was, kind of made you feel a little emotional, right? Cause it's, you know, you were saying earlier, you get in these angry, dark moods and I'm like, and you're like, I, you're trying to stop yourself from doing that. I'm like, no man, like that's what you want. Like that's what you use for your writing. And when you get some of that on the page in whatever form it turns out in, and, you know, you get this joy and that joy, that joy is 75% of the joy in my life. And I've had a, I've so far in my first six, seven years of my career, I've been super lucky. I make a great living. This is all I do. My book's been translated into 14 languages. You know, I've had lots of good things happen, but the, the predominant joy in my life from being a novelist happens when I write something that makes me feel emotional and that joy is accessible to everybody who's listening to this podcast right now. They can wire their brain up and my brain up and they can be just as happy as a novelist as me just by doing what they're trying to do, sitting down and writing something. And when they write something good, you know, that feels good to them. Anyway, that was my rant. Yeah. Um, you definitely have to get joy from this. Uh, oh, crap. There's something I was going to say. I can't remember what it was though. Um, oh, I'll say this. Okay, so my first podcast, I'd mentioned this quote. I couldn't remember who it was from, but uh, this author, Tony Morrison, said, if there's a book out there that you want to read and it doesn't exist, you're the one who has to write it. And you said something similar, which was just write the novel you want to read. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean, that's an old quote, like, I think that's always pretty solid advice for people. The only addendum I sort of add to that, and, and it comes from that very basic notion that if you write the book you want to read, you're probably going to entertain yourself while you're doing it. And there's a higher chance you'll, you'll put out something that, that speaks to someone, whatever it is that you desperately want to read that isn't out there. There's probably a lot of other people who want to read it too, but they're not authors they're not writers so they can't make it so when you make well, it for them not have the time because they got like kids and a busy job that requires sure. like so much out of it and i just chose oh, sure, not right. to do that because i wanted to write this novel <laughs> yeah but uh, but you know not everybody not everybody wants to sit and write a book but you know when um 50 shades of gray sort of came out right i mean she was writing something that was um, you know, for how, regardless of its genesis, you know, clearly something that she kind of wanted to read. And it turned out there was a ton of other people that wanted to read that. And um, whenever you create something that a lot of people have sort of not been able to find, I always think, you know, you've performed a sort of bit of 
kind of very positive spiritual archaeology for one of a you know for one of a better term but you you found something or dug something up that other people kind of wanted to have the the only addendum i always have to the to the um write the book you most want to read is um is kind of write the most extreme version of the book you most want to read um and i say this because i meet a lot of writers and especially young writers who um I don't know why, but at some point we started teaching teenagers that the worst thing in the world, crime they could ever commit in the world is being unoriginal. And so they're, they'll be like, you know, I really, you know, I really love Twilight. You know, I love vampires and I love like sparkly vampires and, you know, but I'm, but I'd never write that because like, that's so cliche. It's so hackneyed and stuff. And so they force themselves away from the things that they like, or they love the Lord of the Rings, but they don't want it to look like they're ripping off the Lord of the Rings. And kind of pulling ourselves away from the actual kind of thing that we're driving towards um, creates no end of problems. And whereas I find if, if instead, you know, you take that person who wants to write that Twilight book secretly and you just say, look, write the most sparkly vampires imaginable, like make it the even more of a romance, even more fraught, more everything that you love about it, um, then chances are you're gonna make something really terrific that's just really unique. And, and it's way better that 95% of the world think that it's utter crap and 5% of the world love it than that 95% of the world think that it's okay. Um, and nobody loves it, you know, like you're not trying to, that's the thing with books. And so, yeah, you, you know, you've got to write the book you want to read. And I think if you try to sort of write the most extreme version of that book, and that's, you know, my first sort of published novel was called Trader's Blade. And it's a, you know, it's a swashbuckling fantasy novel. And I didn't know better because I wasn't particularly uh, tapped into kind of the writing culture or you know MFA programs, and there's nothing wrong with MFA programs. They could be fantastic for people, um, but I just wasn't oh, what, tapped sorry, in. What's an MFA program? Oh, sorry, it's a it's a Master of Fine Arts. So people take creative writing degrees, like they'll they'll like an M they'll get an MFA in creative writing. Okay, yeah, I don't um, I don't have any of that. <laughs> no, M MFAs get a, a bad rap lately, which I don't think is at all fair. But um, but it's you know it's not it's you know it's not my not my battlefield so to speak. But regardless, when I was writing that book, um, I just I didn't have any of those voices saying, hey, you know, don't do this, don't make it cliche, don't let it, you know, you got to make figure out what's going to make it totally unique and. Um, and I didn't do that. And, and somehow by just writing the most extreme version of the book I wanted to read, uh, I ended up writing something where, you know, it, you know, I got a six figure four book deal out of that and it started my career and, and, um, and the editors loved it because they felt like the voice was really strong and finding your voice is one of the hardest things to do as an author. So, yeah. So it, it's always good advice to write the book you most want to read and just try to write the most extreme version of it you can. Um, what exactly do you mean by your voice, just sort of like your unique way of writing or what's most original or um, natural to you? Is that what you mean? Or is it something different? It's great that you asked that because literally when I referred to voice, I immediately thought, I hope Nathan doesn't ask me to define author voice. <laughs> um, it's by far the hardest I, for me. And I think for a lot of people, it's the hardest quality of writing to describe or to delineate um, theme is way easier to, to, to describe than uh, than uh, voice 
So, so voices is, in a way, I always think of it as the camera. So imagine, imagine you're watching a movie getting made, right? And the first thing you do is get rid of the director because who wants that, the director around when we're doing anything? So you're watching this movie getting made, right? There's actors on the set and they're delivering their lines and they're doing whatever they're doing because they're actors and so they're fantastic and they're bringing characters to life. Um, the thing that'll change the most about your experience of whatever scene they're playing out for you is going to be the camera. Where do you put the camera? What does the camera pick up on? What things does the camera leave kind of blurry, but what does it focus really sharply on? How tight is that camera in? And all of those things apply to writing. You know, you can imagine a scene, you know, it's a courtroom scene, right? Like, so, so a typical courtroom scene, James Patterson, John Grisham, whoever you want kind of courtroom scene. And it's, you know, a man's on trial for his life and the family of the victims in the room and the lawyers are there and all that stuff. Now think about like how you would choose to write that. You could write that scene by just talking about the, the I don't know, the oak paneling of the courtroom and the judge's gavel and the grimaces on people's faces. But you could also just tell that story by looking at the clothing of the of the lawyers, you know, and how one of them wears like really creased, you know, suit that doesn't quite fit and looks like it belonged to his granddad. And the other lawyers got this slick, perfectly tailored suit and all that stuff. And, you know, and, and the, the judge, you know, imagine the, the, the writer is writing that scene and they start describing the judge's makeup in detail and how it's this, you know, very fashionable makeup. And you sort of go, man, what's going on with that judge? You know, what's going on with those lawyers? Is there, is there, you know, is this court case going to move differently because the the judge and the and one of the lawyers you know share something in common in terms of being overly concerned with style you know so so that scene all of a sudden because one author chooses to focus on clothing and makeup is going to have a very different feel to it than if it's written in the sort of classic you know focusing on them yelling and pounding tables and stuff like that so it's where you choose. So it's it's not just the words that you use. It's what you choose to look at when you're setting a scene, when you're talking about characters, right? Um, noir writers tend to have a very strong voice and style, right? Um, you know, the Raymond Chandler and uh, Dashiell Hammett, like if you read those books or more modern sort of Dennis Lehane. And, and they sort of have a really strong style but what kind of separates them in terms of voice for me is, is what are they choosing to look at, right? In basic terms, when you think of a scene, you can't write every single thing about the scene, right? Because we're not using cameras, we're not capturing, you can't capture everything in 3D of every single part of the scene. So we're always choosing what we're looking at and what we're focusing on. And for me, that's what kind of creates an author's voice. If they're focusing on the, you know, one of my favorite writers is uh, Aaron Sorkin. He's the TV writer who wrote The West Wing and and um, The Newsroom. And most recently, he did The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yeah, I, I saw it on Netflix. It was pretty good. I really liked it. Yeah, and he's a great writer. And he focuses in on his voice is all about kind of the rhythm of dialogue and uh, and finding sort of the the kind of the, the dramatic... Um, the, the drama inside of, of just exchanges of dialogue and how people say things and representing competing ideals through dialogue. And so we all sort of find that. Um, the, the drag about voice, by the way, just to put a cap on that for, for your listeners is you virtually can never find it by looking for it. 
you know, it comes out when you stop thinking about it. It comes out when you just allow yourself to focus on what your, fo you know, what, where your brain just naturally goes to. And sometimes that voice um, is going to be great right off the bat. And sometimes it's going to not be very good off the bat. And, um, but that's what, but voice comes out a lot through practice and a lot through that sort of writing where you're not analyzing it as you're doing it where you just say, you know, have you ever had that thing where you're just like, oh my God, I can't write, I can't write the scene. I know what the scene's supposed to do, but I can't write it. And you just hit this point where you're like, I can't, I'm just gonna spit it out. And you just like blurt it out onto the page. And that blurting out on the page is generally gonna be closest to your writing voice. Um, For me, when I imagine a scene, it's not so much like I know what it's gonna do. It's more like, so, when it comes to okay so when it comes to writing you mentioned aaron storkin but he has a lot of screen writing now do you think because us we're both in the business of books do you think that's okay to take influence from like the writing of like tv and film and video games because i've said in my first podcast that i just like story in general it's books that's the easiest to do it in because you can do it yourself and you just sit down and write. You don't have to think about all those details of like production that come along the way. So, um, yeah. Um, what do you, so I'm going to ask your thoughts on that, but I'm going to just say that with me, it's, I remember, okay. So whenever I watched, a tv or a film like if i'll remember a scene i'll remember the general gist of what happens it's this guy walks in these two argue that one person walks out like the gist but i don't remember specific dialogue so when i'm thinking of a scene i have a general idea of what's going to happen like i tend to be all over the place i'm like i know at one point he's going to say this i know it's going to lead to this it's going to maybe end like this but i'll have like the first half of the section not filled in and then i'll have bits of the middle and maybe the very end completed and so is that generally what you meant when you said just what happens with me is i just end up stitching it together i'm just like oh i can make because he says this piece of dialogue it has to somehow lead to this piece of dialogue what's going to happen click 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 i mean sometimes i delete stuff because it's just it's not working out but um yeah, is that similar to what you talked about? I'm um, just blurting it out. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, to some degree, you're you're touching on that whole distinction between do you plan out a scene or a book, um, you know, in detail where you know what's going to happen from scene to scene, or do you just kind of, you know, start writing and see where it goes? Right. And you have really good and obvious examples out there of you know Stephen King. Um, you know, notoriously doesn't work from an outline. He just has a vague impulse and he follows it. You know, it's often a situation and he just follows that and sees where it goes. Um, Brandon Sanderson, um, who's a fantasy writer, he's a very, very successful fantasy writer. And, and I always think he's a really good example to look at because he's really generous in that he exposes to the public a lot of his writing process and his early drafts and you can watch you know his entire course that he teaches at Brigham Young University on fantasy and science fiction you can watch it on YouTube and he did a video recently where he showed his editorial process that is 
is so complex and mechanistic and like labor intensive with all these different layers of people involved that when I watched it, I, I told my wife, like, we're both fantasy authors, but I just don't think I'm in the same business as him. Um, Cause it's just so different. Um, whereas like, you know, Stephen King sort of just, you know, he writes one draft and, and uh, you know, he'll go back and change stuff as he goes, but then that's it. And Lee Child's kind of the same way. Um, so it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, at the end of the day, you know, at some point there is some moment where all you're doing is in your head, you're saying, I've put these characters into this situation and now I'm feeding it with this kind of dramatic impulse that's inside of me and let's see where it goes. And if you do that at the outline stage or you do that when you're actually drafting it, it's fine. I tend to think that people who are comfortable I tend to think people who are really comfortable with language in the sense of, you know, like just, they can just sit there and, I mean, I'm a very verbal person. I'll just start blurting stuff out and into long drawn out paragraphs um, that sometimes it's, it's easier if, if you're that kind of person, it's more natural in a way to do your creative, your like conjuring, if you will, conjuring what's going to happen next as you're writing. Um, but for other people, it's, they're two completely separate things. There's the story and then there's the text. And the story is like who the characters are and what happens and where it happens and what the themes are and where it happens here. And then they take that and then they transmute it into text. They take like an idea in their head about a certain type of character and a certain type of event that's taking place. And then they figure out how to word it. I'm, I'm almost more driven the other way. I'll start... I'll think that I have an outline. I'll feel like I need an outline. And then, but then once I lay down like the first sentence, the next sentence is going to flow from that sentence. And all I'm doing as I'm writing is I'm searching for an emotional reaction. I'm just searching for something that's going to happen to a character or that a character is going to do that's going to make me have an emotional reaction, whether it's laughing, crying, cheering, or whatever. And, um, and I just chase after that. And when I found it, when I find it, I'm like, there we go. There's the scene. Um, so it so it all depends on on what you're comfortable with, and and it changes over time too. Like I've uh, you know my I think um, you know I've had ten novels published in English, right? And then, and then they're translated into various languages. So those ten published novels were all written with different processes. So you know um, there's a couple that were written with no outline whatsoever, uh, and there's a couple written with massive outlines. And, um, and there's pretty much no reader on the planet who could tell the difference. Yeah, I, uh, I found out a long time ago, I need to outline. I, I can't do the whole fly by the seat of your pants. I tried that with the first one and I just could not come up with like what to, what to write. Um, so going back to one of the earlier things, does it matter where your influences come from? Because, you know, I've said, to people i'm a right. product of my time like i grew up on video games and hollywood movies and tv uh so i mean like essentially when i write a scene i think a lot of people have difficulty with this when i write a scene i essentially have a movie playing out in my head so i imagine the camera cutting from here to there and that's how i sort of try to describe things um so, I mean, you, you got to read, you got to just read in order to, if you're going to be an author. But um, what I'm trying to say is, is it, it's, I think I know what you're going to say, but how okay is it if you have these influences from 
you know, non-literary story. Well, I mean, if you if you go back to you know the original authors, uh, or sorry, original authors is a weird term. If you go back far enough, people who are writing novels weren't necessarily always being inspired by other novels. They were being inspired by you know real life. You know, Charles Dickens was sort of going into the going into the more um, challenging parts of London, and and sort of discovering how people were living their lives. And, and, in, and in seeing some of that, he was having emotional reactions to that. He was creating his own nightmares, uh, if you will, or his own fantasies is, you know, by seeing these other things. And then, and then that's, you know, that's what gets drawn upon to, you know, suddenly write, you know, whatever great expectations or a tale of two cities. Right. So, I think the the bigger the bigger problem that I see the the thing that I tell I guess I would say um, I you know I'm not a big fan of tough love for writers to be honest uh, because I think most writers mostly just need love not tough love it's a hard enough task for people to do um, so I I never like to discourage people but I think the weakness is not in getting your inspiration from television or movies or video games versus literature. I think the weakness is getting your inspiration from entertainment rather from, than from something more, um, more direct to the human experience. So, you know, you go out and you just experience some, some things in life and sometimes they're pretty tough things or sometimes they're great things. And, and, and then you write from writing from that to me is always, I think, more fulfilling than when I'm writing something that is fundamentally my translated interpretation of either a book I loved or a, a movie that I loved. Right. Um, some some people like I, a good friend of mine is um, Christian Cameron, who writes as Miles Cameron for fam for fantasy novels and Christian Cameron for um for historical fiction and he just he's just like so jazzed on historical research you know like he reads like really deep stuff right like he he has to go you know go get the scholarly text and sit there and read it and interpret it and these are texts that like i would not be and i have a you know degree in archaeology and history and i i wouldn't be able to sort of interpret them the way that he does and he takes that source material and that kind of like that kind of fires his imagination right and there's other people, you know, a lot of, I love to travel and, you know, you go somewhere and you have a, um, you always think if you travel, it's going to be that you go and see some old castle and that's going to inspire your idea. But it's more for me, you know, you go to Egypt and you spend some time with someone who's not, you know, who, who lives a different kind of, a different life than you do, who has different ideas about the world than you do. And some of those experiences, those change what you write. There was this time, I remember when my wife and I were in Egypt for the first time, this was like 20 years ago. Um, and we were, and this, this, this young guy came up to us, this big heavy set young guy. And he was, you know, when you travel in, in, uh, in North Africa, like, you know, you, as in a lot of places, there's, you're always going to have locals coming up to you and go, Oh, you look like you're lost. Let me show you where you want to go. And then, you know, like, and then five minutes later, you're in their uncle's like papyrus shop. Right. And so, you, you know, there's this kind of cynicism that, that, um, tourists tend to have about that. And you're trying to be savvy and you you know, Hey man you don't have to play the game with me. You know, I'm not, um, but the weird thing was we totally misjudged this, this kid. Cause he was just, he took us on this great tour of stuff. He wasn't looking for anything. He just wanted to talk to somebody who's, he spoke really good English and he liked talking in English and, you know, um, 
and and he, you know it was just this great thing and and so what did i experience from that i had that moment where i'm like wow like i got to stop be, you know treating cynicism as the same thing as being savvy right it's not the same and th those experiences when those fire my writing then my writing's usually more interesting so that's a long-winded way of saying like it's totally okay to be inspired by television shows or video games or, or, or movies. And I look, I steal Aaron Sorkin lines anytime I possibly can. Um, and that's the good thing about being a fantasy author. He doesn't write fantasy. So when, so when, you know, occasionally I get readers going, I found an Aaron Sorkinson in your swashbuckling fantasy novel. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so that's totally cool. But the most important thing is trying to make sure that at least half of where you're, what you're, what's firing your imagination is not other entertainment. Um, well, actually, I, if, if anybody were to ask where I get a lot of inspiration, it's rarely entertainment. I actually get a lot of inspiration from real life. Like I'll watch like a video on YouTube of like someplace in like, you know, again, Africa or some political situation here or some odd, um, like a fact about the world that a lot of people don't know. And like they go and they have like just journalists going around recording this right so it gets me thinking about something i could put in my novel um i mean for example people will ask me like what i, I can tell you right now one of my sources is national geographic which is like you'd think like post-apocalyptic and national geographic where do you um i think a lot of it is when you see a lot of these tribal people you're like hey why doesn't put somebody put that in a story that would be interesting to have and then you can just play with it for a while and uh yeah um yeah, yeah for sure um the the more the more the i mean you know even that you know there there's you know, there's things that are really good to draw from in there. And, and then, and then there's, you know, and then you sort of hit the wall where you're like, okay, I can only, um, I can only take so much from it just by watching it. And, you know, whereas if you were talking to somebody who actually, you know, lived, the, you know, those, in those lives, in those communities, in those, with those cultures, you know, you start to realize, wow, like that National Geographic camera was really great because it, it brought me awareness of these people. But now there's this whole other greater depth to it that can be accessed by by actually talking to people. It's funny, I saw um, I saw a little video clip with uh, Frederick Forsyth, who's like the very famous um, espionage thriller writer. Um, it's been around forever and he himself had this like very interesting uh, life independent of being, you know, world famous author. And he said he hates research. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't trust books. He doesn't trust the internet. So what he does is when he wants to write about something, he finds like the world's expert on it. And then he spends like however much time it takes talking to them to find that out. And I thought well, that's kind of, I mean, that's pretty cool. I'm pretty sure if I call up like the world's top CIA agent, they're not going to want to tell me how that, how everything works. But I guess Frederick Forsyth can, can get those meetings. Um, but yeah, it's all just about that. You know, it's, it's, look, it's why people talk about, you know, it's why so many authors, their best work ends up being, and even when it's a fantasy novel with dragons and wizards and whatever else in it, it turns out that it's ultimately derived from the time that their, you know, their dad smacked them around drunk one night. And because that thing is so real, because that thing sticks with you. And one of the reasons why some people write, and I think I write for this reason, in some of the time too, um, 
is writing, especially fiction, especially creating stories, is an incredibly um, helpful way for a lot of us to process those things that haunt us. Um, so, you know, that's the more you, the more you get to things that are real about yourself, the more true the fiction is going to feel for want of a better way of putting it. Um, so you're saying, cause, cause I've heard this before from other authors that, you know, writing is very cathartic and then it's how they sometimes process trauma now, but I don't feel like that's it with me. I mean, I just have these ideas, but I will say, okay, like I'll, I'll let people judge this for themselves. But what happened was with me, it was when I was in the fourth grade, I moved from Calgary to Texas and I think I was having some issues dealing with it. So just one day I started making up like these aliens and like space stuff in my mind. And, and then, you know, it went on to, uh, it also went on to this like sort of, I don't know what to call it because it was like this fictitious land that had existed from the time of the Romans all the way into like the future is this huge history I had made. And then I had later made, I sketched out a video game idea. So I'm wondering if like this spark in my imagination, it's a product of who I am, but it's also because of that one thing that happened when I moved and it just kind of stuck with me. And so that's what everything I've been doing ever since I've been doing is just, it's stemming from from that one thing, even if I'm not always aware of it. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, fundamentally, you know, the the artistic impulse is going to come from something, right? Like, the, you know, I don't want to get too sort of highfalutin or philosophical here, because um, sometimes it's good to talk also in very practical terms. But, but you know, fundamentally, the, the sort of urge to create something artistic, especially like a story or a piece of art, is gonna, it's gonna emerge from something. It's something boiling around inside you, right? If you were just the most perfectly even keeled, happy person who didn't care about anything in particular, you know, if you just, you know, were completely whatever, stoned on whatever, whatever, you know, drugs happen to make you, uh, you know, completely even keeled all the time, you wouldn't have a lot of artistic impulse because part of artist, an artistic impulse is, trying to reconcile, you know, as I always say to people, um, you know, often when you're writing, what you're writing about is the gap between what you feel and what the world looks like, you know? So you, you know, so, so you can have that, you can move to a town and it's like supposed to be this really nice town and everybody's supposed to be real friendly. And you just feel like, I don't feel like everybody's friendly. I don't feel like I belong here. And so you start writing a story about, you know, like a town full of vampires, right? And, and that's sort of part of how we do it. And then from that moment, um, the question is, you know, once that artistic impulse is there, it's just like, what's your medium? And that's where craft comes into play, right? Because, you, you know, um, and, you know, it's such a common story. I hear this all the time where someone says, you know, I had this idea for a story. So I started trying to write it. And then I thought it'd be a comic or then I thought I would make a movie. And then I thought it'd be a video game. And it's because people are like, well, they haven't had a chance to build up the toolkit to allow them to kind of work, uh, do a big piece of work in, in the, their medium of choice. You know, imagine that you just, you, you, saw, um, you saw this horse once, right? And you just, this horse 
for whatever reason, it just evoked the notion of lightning in your head. And you said this idea, this lightning horse, you know, this horse, horse filled with thunder. Well, think of all the ways you could, you know, activate that artistic impulse. You, it could be a painting, right? You know, it could be a painting, it could be a story, it could be a film, it could be a poem, right? But at the point at which now you want to turn that into something, now's where craft comes into play. Now's where you need the tools, right? If I, you know, if I want to make a, a sculpture, um, you can't make a sculpture unless you've got sculpting tools. And having sculpting tools doesn't need, do you any good unless you learn how to you know how to use those tools. The wonderful thing about writing and the reason, but also the reason why it's a trap for so many people is that we don't all learn how to use sculpting tools, but we all, almost all of us learn how to use writing. We all write, we you know, write emails, we write you know, nasty tweets, we write essays, you know, we're all forced to write. Um, we're not all forced to paint, we're not all forced to sculpt, we're not all forced to dance, we're not all forced to learn poetry. Um, so the, the, the trap sometimes is that that also makes us feel like we've really already got all the tools we need. So we'll sit down and start trying to write a story and then it becomes really difficult because it, it always does and it does for me and it does for every writer I know. Um, and then there's that feeling like, oh, I must be in the wrong medium because it's not coming out the way I want. And so that's where we start to sort of look around. Maybe it needs to be something else when in fact, it's just, you know, words are a medium, uh, you know, books are a medium and you, you have to kind of build up your tools for working with it. Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason that it, we find it difficult is because I think with writing a story, we essentially come across a lot of problems that really don't have a solution. I mean, I was at VCon, I think in 2018, and I met an author who was talking about an author who was very successful at what he did. And he said, said author was almost always convinced that every new novel he was writing was going to be crap and people were going to say he's an imposter and they were going to expose him to being a hack. Now, when you have a couple of novels under your belt, you think you're going to like go, oh, I've got this down. This is a solved problem. But here we do have a guy who um still has doubts. So, I mean, I think like for me, that would only happen if, again, it's just an unsolved problem. I mean, I was, when I was first starting out, I was looking at like, you know, again, Game of Thrones and I was like, looking at all these events and how they connect. And I'm like, well, how did he figure out how to do that? What was his process? How did he know that this event here would require all this to be led up to it? I mean, I now learned that George R. R. Martin's own pants are so just making shit up on the go. But um, after a while, like I said, I realized uh, there's just no answer to this. There's no, like, guarantee that i mean there's guidelines but there's no rules to writing this and as i've said before um with my own experiences i'm either qualified to do this and i know what i'm doing or i don't have a clue i'm just completely in the dark and unqualified to do this uh yeah that's i mean that's that's what's one of the interesting things about uh yeah, story creation in general, I find. Well, I you you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said, um, you know, there's no guarantees. Like that, that I think is the the biggest um, 
impediment for so many writers is that for some reason they're looking for guarantees. They're looking for, a, you know, um, look, I'm a serial purchaser of craft books and courses. You know, I've bought courses on writing from people who have not written or published as many books as me, uh, which isn't which isn't to say that you should only study from people who've you know um, been more successful than you, but but just you know I, I I just have this natural impulse because there's a part of me that's always going like come on I just want the guarantee I just want the thing that's going to let me know that if I do this if I you know if I'm putting in this work something good's going to come out the other end and that is the one thing you will never ever have. Like I say, I've had 10 books published. I, I'm doing the eighth draft and I never do eight drafts of a book typically, but I'm, I'm in the eighth draft of this book that's coming out next year that you know my, my editor was pretty happy with like a year ago already. Um, and I'm still not sure if, is this the best version of this book? And so, and it doesn't matter, like there's no process, you know, there's, there's no process that's gonna get you there. Um, all of those tools, like they're important only be in so far as they help you get going, you know, like the, you, you, the skill, you know, it's like the, it's the same, it's the same as, you know, imagine again, taking the example of sculpture and, and, and imagine I said to you, like, you know, listen, Nathan, I, um, I think I want to become a professional sculptor. So, um, so I've bought like all these courses on sculpting and I've, uh, gone and listened to talks by famous sculptors and um, you know and I bought a lot of books on it and I'm reading my way through them and at some point you'd say well you know what, what have you sculpted so far and it's like um, well not really anything because I really want to make sure I'm, it's going to be good before I do it you'd be like well that's crazy right because you're you're even even if it was all stuff you could fit in your head the bottom line is it's going to have to come out your hands and your so your muscle memory you know your muscles have to learn to work a certain way right and writing is exactly the same it doesn't look like a muscle that we usually see but it is a muscle and it has to get practiced it's like a mental so when you go and yeah it's the it's the mental muscle and but i always i actually think it's to be honest i think it's like an emotional muscle um you know imagine i said to you right now look you're about to you want you're about to write a battle scene where a bunch of people um, are going to, you know, are going to be dying and terrified for their lives, right? And you're going to write that scene that looks like everything's, that our heroes are surrounded and they're going to die. And you need to write the scene and they're, where they're terrified. Okay. Now, Nathan, uh, I need you to start feeling terrified right now. And I need to you to ter feel terrified and turn that terror into words, into really beautiful words that, that actually conjure that same terror in someone else. That's like a You'd probably go well. I'm not terrified right now. Like, can't I just describe it? And and to some degree, you know, you can sort of try. But there's some level where you have to access the parts of your own experience that let you understand, like, what is it like to be terrified? Because you know, you might get your head taken off with a sword. And that's why you know, drawing on real world experiences is often good, even if it's not the experience of you know. I always I always use the example of the opening of Spellslinger which is that book for me was very much about my high school experience, even though it's a fantasy novel with magic and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But I open it up with, I open it up with like a duel between these students of magic um, in this culture. And 
Um, but I wrote it exactly the way uh, it feels when you when you're in school. And I don't know if this. Hopefully, people don't get bullied the same way anymore. But when you're you're in school and someone's told you, oh. Johnny's gonna gonna kill you after school. He's you, you know he's decided he's gonna beat you up in front of everybody, right? And when you leave school at four o'clock or whatever, and you know there's somebody waiting for you, um, that's what I wrote, right? The magic was the all the spells like that's all fine, but I wrote from that, and and that, and and that was actually kind of in some ways it's a little bit traumatic because if I think about that. If I remember that feeling, I just remember like, I remember being terrified, but I also remember feeling ashamed. Like I feel I felt so ashamed that I was terrified of somebody and knowing that probably what I was gonna do is just get down on my knees and beg them not to beat me up, right? And so, you know, you gotta be able to access that stuff and then you translate it. And that's, so that's like a, kind of an emotional muscle. And, and it's hard because not, people aren't always feeling like they're in a position to do that but sometimes that's what you're doing. So yeah, it's a mental muscle, but it's an emotional muscle, but more than anything, it's practice. And, and that's why I always say like, again, when you're, when you're trying to write, like authors don't need tough love. They don't, the last thing they need to do is tell themselves that they're lazy or be told that they're lazy or that they're no good. Like they just need to find the, the strength in themselves to sit down and, and write. And then, you know, some of it's going to be terrible and some of it's going to be amazing. And until you finish your first novel, you don't know all the things that you're really great at. And that's like the coolest part. My first novel that I wrote, which, you know, I hadn't written, I had never written a short story in my life. And then I sat down and wrote a novel and it was a mystery novel and it was terrible. And it was, it had all these problems with it. And it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. I could, you know, beat myself all day. But there were parts of that thing that just, I adored. And I was like, I didn't know I was good at this. And it's not like the whole thing. It's not like I didn't know I was good at prose or I didn't know I was good at character. I did. It's, I didn't know I was good at writing a scene where like an old man who everybody thinks was worthless suddenly proves themselves to be tremendously honorable and brave. I didn't know that I was good at writing that. I had no particular reason to. And then, you know, afterwards you could go back and go, oh, that's really interesting because my dad was a soldier in World War II and, and he had all these things and he was a very small man and, you know, physically and, and you can kind of psychoanalyze it, but it doesn't matter. It turns out there's something I was good at, but you only find out when you've just sat down and, you know, gotten your way through it. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like when you're talking about the stuff I think about in my novel that I draw upon in my past for sure. Um, you also hinted at something. Okay, this is another quote I like that you said. You have this whole concept of the not writing industry. And <laughs> I think I understand that now because you see all these videos on YouTube of like 10 tips for writing a novel, 10 tips for writing a good character, 10 things not to do, right? I'm thinking to myself, you can watch those videos all day long. At a certain point, you got to go out there and actually do it because it's not going to make sense. At least for me, it wasn't going to make sense until you just you just got to write. You got to do it. You got to put it on the paper or the computer. Yeah, I I um I always got to be careful when I when I sort of use this term, the not writing business, um, because you know I don't I don't want to attack anybody for for creating conferences or events or, or, Hey, podcasts, um, that, that, 
it's very one of the one of the characteristics one of the, the worst danger i think if you're trying to be a writer is allowing yourself to um to deceive your 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 own self as to whether you're actually writing or not right now right so getting education we're so ingrained to think that getting education is a good idea and over and 99 of the time it is right but but getting education about something makes you feel like you're kind of doing it. So if you've always wanted to be, a, you know, a songwriter and, uh, and you go take a songwriting course, you kind of feel when you're in that course, when you're in a classroom surrounded by other people who want to be songwriters, listening to a teacher who's a songwriter themselves, you kind of feel like, oh, maybe I'm, I kind of feel like being a, I'm a songwriter right now. So you're scratching that itch, right? But you don't want to scratch that itch right? Beyond a certain point. You, you want that starving, hungry, like, oh my God, I have to be a songwriter. Like if I don't write a song right now, I'm going to just go lose it, right? So you don't want to pacify that internal drive. Um, and so a lot of the times, you, you know, when I see all, all of the courses and the books and the and all of that stuff and the conferences and stuff like some, they can be great, but you just have to understand that's not writing. That's not anything to do with writing. You have, you are less a writer in the moment where you're at the whatever grand master class full of the best authors in the world with a one-on-one -on -one critique sessions and all, you are less a writer in that moment than the 14 year old kid sitting in their bedroom writing their sparkly vampire story that night. They are doing the real work and you are not. Doesn't mean courses aren't good, doesn't mean conferences aren't good. It's just that there is a part of them that is a trap that, and it's not the fault of the people who put them on, it's the fault of people like me who will go, I should be writing right now, but I'm too, but I've got too much anxiety about sitting and writing. So I'm gonna study this you know, course. I'm gonna read Stephen King's on writing you know, to, again, and, and, and that, that'll make me feel like I'm doing something. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, for sure, like, I'll occasionally watch like the occasional video of like, just, just to see what other people say. I, I mean, what I was just trying to say was like, I got an idea of what you meant, because I said, just for me personally, like, I could watch these all day long. And as you said, but at the end of the day, if I haven't written anything, I haven't, I haven't done squat. Mm -hmm. Hey, and I do, I listen, I watch tons of that stuff. I look, I spend more time on YouTube probably than I do composing text. And, uh, and, you know, I'm lucky that I can get away with that because, you know, because I'm a full-time novelist and because when I'm writing, I write pretty fast and I don't tend to need 20 drafts of a book to, to get to, to what it is I'm trying to say. Um, uh, I think what I've been finding for myself, and I don't know if, if this is the same for you or, or for your listeners, but I always, I have, part of me suspects that it's more common than, than we sometimes think, which is, I find that part of being a novel, a writer for me is I have to learn to recognize my own anxiety and learn how I want to address it. So, you know, there's that old thing, you hear tons of writers will say this, you know, they'll, they'll give you that nice, tough love advice, right? It goes like this. You sit down and you get up at five in the morning. You got a, you got a job that you got to start at 7 a.m. Well, you just get up at five in the morning and you sit your butt down in that chair and you don't move till you've written 2,000 words, right? 
and 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 it's funny because um you know i was kind of raised in that same sort of faintly macho-esque kind of you know manly man like you got to just tough it out kind of thing right and um when i do if i try to do that uh i just i send my anxiety like through the roof when i'm sitting there and i start to hate it and i hate my you know i start to hate myself and i start to hate everything like i just start to come apart as a because human you being. feel like you're actually lazy because you're not able to get going i mean i've only like i remember you saying something that said you know like if you write after work and think that because you've written 500 words in two hours you're going to be able to write 2,000 words in eight hours and you're like yeah it doesn't really work that way and part of me was like oh i'll prove you wrong sebastian but now that i've been off for a week yeah you're right <laughs> You're totally right. It's just a lot of YouTube videos. And I mean, I make progress, but, uh, you know, it was certainly like the past three days, I just had to take a break because I'm trying to plan the second part of like the third draft. And I just want it to feel natural as opposed to like, oh, you just put that because you told yourself to put something. Yeah. And, and you know, look, anything that puts words on the page is okay. Right. Um, what I, all I'm sort of saying, uh, and by the way, you know, like, look, there's lots of things that do help. Like there's people who talk about ritual, right? Like there's people like, you know, I make this kind of tea and I put it on at this time and I put on this music and then I sit down and then I have this meditation and that's great. Like anything that works is good for me as a writer. I tend to find what, you know, what people refer to as writer's block is just basic anxiety, right? What I tend to find helps me is just to be aware if I sit down, if I try to sit down and write, right? So I'll bring up the, the writing application that I'm using and I sit down in the chair and I sit there and I try to just see if I can write. And if I start to feel like I can't do this, like I'm feeling that weird, like tightness in my chest and all that anxiety and anticipation, I'll just go, you know what, that's okay. We'll just sit, you know what, I'll, I'll go watch the YouTube video, right? For half an hour. And, and, and when I come back and I don't say to myself, I'll just, you know, in half an hour, then I'll come back and I'll really do it. I go in half an hour, I'm going to come back and I'm just going to try again. I'm just going to try. I'm just going to take my temperature. Can I write a sentence, you know? And so I'll, I'll go and do whatever it is I'm doing. And then I'll come back and I sit down and I go, nope. You know what? I still feel like crap. I just, oh, the anxiety's coming, the pressure, the, you know, I'm a procrastinator. I'm lazy. I was never any good. I just got lucky, you know, all that kind of stuff. You go, okay, just, you know what? go do whatever you want to do for half an hour. You don't have to succeed an hour or a half an hour from now. You just have to show up and just try again. You just take your temperature, see how you feel. And I just find that after a while, you reach that point where you're just calm enough to write the one sentence, to try the one sentence. And then, you know, you get a few more sentences. And, and if I hit a point where, um, where I just, I start to feel that anxiety creeping in, that writer's block, that whatever you want to call it, imposter syndrome, all those things, then I'll just go, okay, I'm, I, I recognize how I feel. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge how I feel. I'm going to go and try something else. Um, and, but, and all that matters is, is you just come back and just try again. And, th and that's kind of worked for me because most of the time what will end up happening is, you know, I'll, I'll screw up a couple of times or, or I'll get a lucky run and then I'll screw up a bunch of times. Um, but I'll still end up writing like a lot just because, I don't push myself to the point where I'm where I've gotten so stressed out that I have to give up for a day or or heaven for fend where you have to give up for a week. Those are the things that are really crippling. 
it is absolutely true. If you write every day, it gets easier to write. Um, if you have a routine that can make it easier to write. Um, but for me, the number one tool is just recognizing when you, when you, you, you're, you know, your whatever levels that they are, your cortisol levels in your body are just raising up and going, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to fight the writer's block. I'm not going to fight the writer. Right. I want to beat writer's block. I don't want to beat the writer up. And, and so, the, you know, that, that often kind of works for me. Uh, how much, maybe this is a little uh, out of left field, but um, how much exercise do you get a day? Um, do you find that helps or is it just like some days you'll exercise and it works, some days you'll exercise, it just doesn't happen at all? You know, I sort of go through phases. Um, so I don't, I haven't been exercising that much lately. Um, you know, I'll try to sort of make myself, I'll try to sort of make myself do something every day for a while. Like I'll just go, you know what, all that matters, I'm just going to do chin-ups and see how many I can do, you know? And I'll go like, you know, at first it won't be that many. And then like I've done them every day for a month and then it's like, oh, I can do 10 chin-ups. That's all right. You know, for, for me, uh, that's, that's pretty good. Um, I actually find uh, running, which I haven't been doing a lot of running lately, because the problem for me is I've lived where I've, I've lived in this house. Like my wife and I, we, we travel a ton, but we've lived in this house for like 20 years. So um, when I'm not traveling, I get so bored of the same, you know, exact running route. Like I've run the same running route, like, I don't know, a couple of few thousand times. Um, and so I sort of get tired, but and the, the the real drag of that for me is that while yeah exercise and running especially for me um are really great ways to like lower your anxiety um i re i rely on writing for composition and inspiration a lot i don't know why but i think because right running is kind of hard for me i'm not a very good runner um so it's easier for me to kind of, uh, to, you know, listen to music, imagine a scene and make my, and put myself in that emotional space. You know, like going back to our example, right? Where I say, okay, you know, Nathan, you got to write a, a, a scene. It's a battle scene and it's the main character and their, and their closest allies are all surrounded. Right. And they're just, they know that they're, they could just die in the next two minutes. Um, I, if I go running and put on like dramatic music and I'm running, I can just run harder to the point where I feel like crap. And then I'm like, okay, I'm starting to feel what it's like. My heart's pounding. I feel like I can't go anymore. And there's the swords coming at me. Right. So I find exercise is often really good for that. Just putting your, your body and your mind in a slightly different position where you can stress it, you know, because typically when we're writing novels, we're, we're mostly not writing novels about people sitting around thinking about things. We write novels about people who are doing things. And so when you're exercising, when your body's in motion, it's, for me, it's easier to kind of put myself in that position of connecting with someone who is doing something. Hey, do you got any questions for me? Let's switch it around. You can interview me now. It's unconventional because it's the unconventional author. <laughs> I hope you had, I, I hope you edit out the dead air parts. That's the only part that's. Uh, um, yeah, no, I was going to ask you though, uh, like how your how your book's going. Like you said, you're on the third draft. So have you kind of written? You've kind of gotten from beginning to end. You've taken your character on a journey, and 
or you know whatever it is and you've sort of hit there in, with your post-apocalyptic novel yeah well okay here's the thing with me so when i went on this venture in 2013 where i said hey i got this idea i've had it in my head for a while i can put it in a book it's going to be easy oh i had such a trivial way of looking at it um back then i was like in retrospect i was really naive but um it was originally meant to be just one novel where somebody rebuilds civilization across the planet in after a post in a post-apocalyptic world and then the novel became two then four then six and i had some advice from an editor back in june and when she said this it made sense she said i need to take what i have and split it into two so I figured out where I want to split. And so I spent the last six months, all almost six months, just um, taking her advice and working with it. There was some stuff that I felt I had to change um, just, just because I wasn't happy with it. And there was uh, some ideas I had, like oh, I had a hard time figuring out the exact level of technology in this post-apocalyptic world. And I finally settled on some, I settled on a lot of ideas because I guess I had so many influences pulling me back and forth. Um, so there was that. And then, so there's stuff I'm changing just because I'm not satisfied with it. And then there's obviously her suggestions she made. So I remember, <laughs> I remember last December, I was talking to a guy and he said, yeah, try to make a goal of getting it done by the end of next year. Well, end is approaching. I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll make a goal. I'm trying to get the third draft done. Uh, and then giving it back to her, seeing what she thinks. And hopefully after that, I go through the whole process of, you know, get querying an agent to get an editor and a publisher and get it out there and all that. Um, speaking of which, so I was talking with Peter about this. I want to see what your take is on it traditional publishing versus self-publishing what are your uh what's your opinion because you've gone the traditional publishing route and have had success with it for sure yeah i mean i got pretty lucky um and that sort of always helps and that's why i always talk about the external joys versus the the internal joys and the external joys aren't aren't about being a writer they're about you know what happens with your writing the internal joys are, are the ones that we all have access to just by, you know, doing our writing and, and writing things that we believe in. Um, so, you know, I think most writers, I think most traditionally published writers are going to ultimately become uh, hybrid authors. In other words, you know, they'll have some books that are traditionally published by, by big publishers and some that they self-publish. Um, and even if, you know, uh, I, I give away a couple of free short story type things on my website, that's technically self-published, right? I turn them into a, you know, a readable document and a PDF or, or whatever else. And then, I, and I give it to people. Um, so, uh, I think what, what's most affects it right now is, you know, the, it used to be an issue of, you know, whether, you know, where the money was, right? So it used to be there was a lot of money in traditional publishing and there wasn't much money in self-publishing. And then there's been a lot of money in self-publishing and now there's still a lot of money in self-publishing, but it's, you know, vastly more difficult and more complicated than an enterprise because you have to kind of, 
there's a lot of marketing involved. There's a lot of investment involved. Um, but I think the main factor now that people need to think about is, is genre. Some genres uh, are much more successful self-published than they are traditionally published. And it'll generally be any genre that is fairly hypersaturated, right? So if you take, um, so cozy mysteries are, are a pretty good example. So for anyone who doesn't know what a cozy mystery is, it's typically, it's, it's sort of a, a puzzle mystery story. Like it's your, your classic, you know, uh, Agatha Christie mystery story. There's not a lot of graphic violence. There's virtually no swearing and there's like no sex on the page. And, you know, so you can, you can break those boundaries if you want. And some people do. Um, it's often set in a small town with a quirky cast. It's cast. It's usually got a bit of a more fun vibe to it. It's usually, I think, a little bit conservative, um, philosophically speaking. You know, it's not usually a very radical left or radical light, right kind of um, political framework. It's, it's just that sort of down home, you know, small town quirky stuff, right? Well, there's a ton of people who adore those books and they consume them at a rapid rate. The books are generally pretty short. They're like 60,000 words and, you know, to 60 to 80 or 90,000 words typically. Um, there's tons of people who love it, tons of people that read it. And there's very few traditional publishers that are touching it right now. Um, and they're not touching it because they're, the market's super saturated. There's just tons of it out there. So for a traditional publisher who is trying to figure out what's the next blockbuster, um, it's too big a risk, right? So if you love writing cozy mystery, there's a good chance that you want to self-publish it. On the other hand, if what you want to write is, I don't know, let's say, um, well, you know, uh, epic fantasy, right? There's, there's some, there's some uh, self-published epic fantasy out there, but right now, most of the big epic fantasy, the, the 400,000 word, you know, doorstop books, are traditionally published because those are things where number one, traditional publishers, it's not super saturated uh, as a market. Traditional publishers can and do make huge amounts of money out of it. But also uh, those kind of huge books, like I gave the example of Brandon Sanderson uh, earlier, like watch his video. He, he put up a video recently about his editorial process. And when you realize like how many people it takes to edit his book, you know, his books properly because there's just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words in that world. And at that point, it's, it gets kind of hard to do it self-published because you just sort of need a lot of support. Um, and those books need a lot of marketing support and the readership often prefers buying in uh, hardback, which, you know, is, you, you know, definitely you can self-publish, you know, in print. Um, but to produce those types of books of that size and, and with those covers, can be, it's just a more complicated production line, right? So those kind of things seem like right now, not forever, maybe by the time, maybe if someone's listening to this a year from now, things may have changed. But for right now here in 2020, often that kind of big epic fantasy is easier to do with a traditional publisher. Um, and uh, whereas, you know, something where you're writing, uh, so police procedurals is a really interesting one for that. So police procedurals was absolutely traditional publishing stuff. You know, it's like those um, Ian Rankin books and all that that kind of that kind of um, you know police fiction. Sorry, what was but it recently, police procedural, police procedural. So it's a sort of a subgenre of mysteries and thrillers in which what the readers 
kind of reading for is police procedure. They want to see the cops following the steps. They want to feel like they're a cop. Do you know? And and it's different from the old mysteries where it was like you could enjoy it and there'd be cops in it, but you kind of knew cops didn't really do things that way. Like cops didn't you know randomly follow hunches or you know pull stings all the time and just you know that you pull out a gun and shoot at people just for the hell of it. You know. Um, so police procedurals try to stay pretty close. That's why they're, they're very regionally set. It'll be like, you know, the Glasgow police force. And when you're reading one of those books, you're reading how the Glasgow police really do things. Um, you know, for the, for the most part, obviously there's, there's a little more drama and, and action that takes place, but those books were very traditionally published for, for the most part, they were big in traditional publishing. And that's recently started to shift. Um, you start seeing like LJ Ross in the UK who, Kind of went way up the charts and a few other people who are self-published and they now have some of the most the biggest selling ones and i was just talking to my agent the other day and he was like yeah we're you know um we have enough hit uh police procedural authors in you know in in their sort of stable they're not looking for more of that um so if but which doesn't mean you can't make money on it but that's where self-publishing comes into play um yeah, the, the traditional publishing is, is generally speaking, targeting at reaching um, a small percentage of a very large potential audience. Um, Self-publishing works really well when you're trying to get a relatively large percentage of a relatively small, uh, narrowly defined audience. In other words, if you know where to find them, right? So it's, you, you know, you're writing post-apocalyptic, right? So there's a lot of self-published post-apocalyptic right now. And part of it is that they know, they know how to find the audience and the audience knows exactly what they look for. Like the audience, there's a set of search terms and that's what someone who likes post-apocalyptic a lot will go and read on, they'll go on Amazon and they'll type in those search terms. And if you can define it down to those search terms, then you're probably gonna do pretty well. You have a good shot with self-published. If you have something like my books, um, for example, The Great Coats, which is like swashbuckling fantasy, people don't really hit, you know, search swashbuckling on, uh, on Amazon very much. So what my audience are, are you know, I mean, I probably about 50% of my sales are, are digital, but, but my audience is often people, they're going into bookstores and they're looking for the beautiful physical book that they want to keep on the shelves and they want to feel like it's you know, it's part of some other, you know, hoity-toity tradition, so to speak. Um, so yeah, it depends what you write. Yeah, okay. so yeah, it, it uh, depends on what you write. Cool, that, uh, that definitely cleared some stuff up for me. Um, I will say, by the way, just to, just to put a cap on that whole thing about self-publishing and traditional, uh, it's really important. I think your, your listeners, will really want to take with a grain of salt when they hear people say things like, oh, traditional publishing is dead or, um, oh, self-publishing is, is, you know, dead or it's all crap or it's any of those kind of global statements are just, they're really unsophisticated and they're not true. So, you know, I deal with this all the time. Like I, it's so funny because I, I really like the self-publishing kind of world and the community and I meet some of those people but I'll hear them talk on, on videos and podcasts and they'll say this kind of stuff. I hear this all the time. Like, oh, you know, unless you're James Patterson or Stephen King, like you're not going to make a living off of traditional publishing. And it's like, well, I'm not James Patterson or Stephen King and I make a great living. Yeah, I've heard uh, that too. Publishing. Yeah, there's just a lot. And, you know, there's just a lot of that kind of um, 
really sort of blunt generalizations out there. Um, it's if you look at any one subgenre or any one author, you can start to pretty easily see why it do, they they do or don't succeed in either traditional or self-publishing. Um, but you have to go to that level. So you would never say, okay, um, what I love writing is dragon, like fantasy dragon romance. So there, um, but I'm going to, but I'm going to be traditional because I heard self-publishing sucks, right? Because it's entirely possible that dragon fantasy romance is really a great opportunity in self-publishing and a terrible opportunity in traditional publishing. Um, and one of the problems is I think most of us have always approached this from the standpoint of we first decide if we want to be traditional or self-published and then we start writing our book. But that's not really how you can, you can't really rely on that. Because if what you want to write is, you know, giving that example of police procedurals, if what you want to write is police procedural, depending on when you finish your book, it may be it may be that the world is swung to self-publishing for that genre, or it may be that the world is swung back to, tradi to traditional publishing for that genre. You know, um, historical adventure is one that was, that was a big genre for a long time. And I have friends in that sort of space and they're having a ton of trouble, you know, getting book deals with that because um, that, that sort of the audience for historical adventure tended to be very old. Right. Like they're, and so, you know, they were, they were in their fifties 20 years ago and now they're in their seventies and there's just less of them uh, as they get into their eighties. And so traditional publishing wasn't really grabbing on to a lot of that historical adventure anymore. But um, if you, but those people, when they're on Amazon and they know exactly what they're looking for. And so if you self-publish, you can find those people and they can find you. And that's what it all comes down to. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I like that, you know, you cleared it up and you told certain people that if they say one thing or the other, they're kind of in their own little, like, I don't like it when people are in their own little fog and think that their opinion or what they know is correct just because of, I mean, for whatever reasons, like they're not open to, Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Um, it seems to me though, that if you go the traditional publishing route it would be in the publisher's best interest to promote your book because i mean they want to make money right so if they promote the book doesn't that increases their chance doesn't that increase their chance of making money i mean if like you go traditional publishing and they don't do anything for you is that just because they don't think it's gonna work out but if it does they want to get the benefits of it without taking any of the risk or am I just completely missing the mark here? No, look, you know, this is the problem is that it's like, um, you know, it's, it's like, the, what's that sort of old story about like the four, the four people brought into a pitch dark room and they're told to like t figure out what, what the animal is that's in the, or what's in the room. And one feels like this big, thick, rough thing. And they think, Oh, it's, a, and they say, Oh, it's a tree there's a tree in this room. Another person feels this long slender thing goes, no, 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 there's a snake in this room, you know? And there's like, like, and it turns out it's an elephant, but they're each only touching one part of it. Right. So, you know, every author that you talk to and frankly, every editor or every person who says, I used to work in traditional publishing and I can tell you how it works. 
they had they were in the same room with the elephant the elephant only touching one part of it right so they only know kind of what's within that pretty limited range of experience my limited range of experience is with that i started in traditional publishing when people were saying there was no money they wouldn't do any marketing they you know all that sort of stuff um I've had books where they did a ton of uh, marketing and I have books where they did virtually no marketing. Um, and I'll get to the scary part of this in a second, by the way, but just, just as an example, like Spellslinger came out in 2017. When they launched that book, like the, the launch of that book took place in a place called uh, the Crypt Beneath St. Martin's of the Fields in Leicester Square in London. So for anybody who hasn't spent time in London, Leicester Square is like one of the most expensive pieces of real estate on the planet. Um, you know, it's where the theater district is. It's like always packed, it's huge, it's beautiful. St. Martin's in the Fields is a beautiful old sort of church and the crypt is this beautiful place under, underground. They had um, all of this stuff, they had actors playing parts of the characters doing duels and tricks and all this stuff like, they, they, they had someone dress up as a giant squirrel cat because like that's an animal I created for this book. They did tons of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they got me on BBC radio. They, they you know, my book was, re was reviewed in The Guardian and the, the literary journal, like whatever, um, I can't remember which one it's called, but you know, all the, you know, the financial times, like all this stuff. Um, and they did that. They took a huge risk and they took a huge risk because they thought it was going to, they thought this book was going to pay off and the book has done well. And the series has done well. It's probably, I'm sure that if you, you know, wired them up to a polygraph, they would say, we were kind of secretly hoping it was going to do better than that. Like, you know, we would have liked to have had the next game of Thrones thing, but it's been translated into 14 languages and, and, uh, or, you know, that one, I think that one's 12 or 13 languages. Um, and the, you know, there's a movie option out there on it and all this kind of stuff. So, so sometimes they take a big risk with Trader's Blade, my first book, they didn't do a big, massive publishing campaign, but they did a really good, um, online, like social media campaign. And so that book did, um, did great. Like it did really well. Um, and they were surprised like that ended up being, um, you know, a big book for, for that imprint. Um. I'm sure they too would like it if it was even bigger. Um, so it, it, it varies. The thing that happens and the reason why I think a lot of authors get really disillusioned is that when a publisher buys a book, they almost always buy it because they think it could be a massive hit or they think the author could be a massive hit author. Sometimes they don't do this much anymore, but there was a time where they would hire, where they would publish an author who didn't have a, a fantastic book that they thought was going to make a fortune, but because they thought that author had tremendous potential and that if they start that relationship, they could basically shepherd that author, help nurture that author. That doesn't happen so much anymore. Now they sort of want the book, but they'll, they get the book and they think, you know, this book is going to be, we think it's going to be a hit. Well, now what happens? Now it goes into editorial and they start going through the marketing analysis process and they start figuring out like the publicity and, and now it's going to be a year to two years before this book comes out. And what very often happens is over the course of that year or two years, the enthusiasm just disappears. It just wanes for whatever reason. Maybe the final draft of the book isn't as amazing as they hoped, or maybe 
weird things happen in the industry. Like they discovered that, you know, um, a genre started, stopped selling as well. Uh, or another author that's a similar, in the similar genre had a, had a book that failed. And so they start getting scared and they start getting worried. And then meanwhile, while this is happening, they're buying other books, right? They're in other genres from other new authors and they're getting excited about those. So the problem, one of the problems with traditional publishing is it's such a long cycle for the most part that people's excitement just wanes. Um, and so you'll have someone who feels when they're signed, when they get that book deal, like, oh my God, these people love me. They're gonna, they're, this book's gonna be huge. And they have all these dreams. And then a, a year and a half or two years later, when the book's about to come out, they're like, I don't get it. Like, no one's talking to me anymore. Like, it's, they just lost all interest. And they, you know, to varying degrees that that really happens. Sometimes the reverse can happen. Like I have a book that's coming out next year called Way of the Argosi. And it's a, it's basically a spinoff um, series from Spellslinger. And it was the only reason this book existed originally was because when they bought the contract for Spellslinger, they contracted me for eight books. I don't know how they picked that number, but they largely picked it out of the air because they wanted to just, they wanted to kind of lock me up in my um, young adult fantasy for a while. And, and then by the time the sixth Spellsinger book was out, so they only, they knew, like the, the editors knew almost from the beginning, they only wanted six books. They just ended up with two extra books on the contract. And so by the time the sixth book was coming out, you know, the, the head of the company had moved on and started a new publishing uh, enterprise. And so had the, the, top, the second in command person. And, you know, half the people were gone. And so it was looking like, you know, um, Way of the Argosy, this book, like they weren't even going to publish it in hardback. They were going to put it out in paperback first. And I was just like, oh my God, this will be my first book that's not coming out in hardback first. Now, tons of books, especially in fantasy, don't come out in hardback first. But I was always like, I really like it when it comes, you know, I'm very uh, tactile. So I'm, I'm really focused on, I want to feel my lovely hardback book when it's done, which maybe isn't the best or savviest business mindset, but it's the one I have. And I just felt like, oh, you know, this isn't going to be that big a book. And then something weird happened, which is I turned in the manuscript and, and the, the, the editor who was working on it, like is a really wonderful guy. And he just got super excited about it. And then all of a sudden I find out, you know, they are going to put it out in hardback. They are going to give it a big marketing push there. They, they did all this work to get a beautiful cover, to get interior art for the book. And so this book that I, I had told my wife like months before was like, this is this book, you know, it's going to come out and nobody's going to know it exists. Right. Like all they're all I'm going to get is a subset of my existing fan base for Spellslinger. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, maybe maybe it could be a, a big book. So that's the that's the reality is that because of those that big length of time between when you get your book deal or when, you know, you turn in a manuscript and when it's going to be published, just so much can change and it can change for the better. Um, and probably more often it'll it can change for the worse. Yeah, um, what you're saying reminds me a lot of, uh, I guess, just my own personal views on life is that things can go south fast. So if you get good news, try not to get too elated or take it as a caution, a sign of they're saying that now, but things can happen. I mean, I uh, probably going to mention this a whole bunch of times when I do these podcasts, but I used to. I briefly worked in the video game industry and I was working for a company that was trying to get off the ground. And one of the things 
the guy said to me when I first started was he said, well, we're on the runway and we're about to take off. And he'd also say things like, well, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He said the money will come. It's only a matter of time. Well, two and a half years later, when I finally left, nothing had happened and nothing has happened. So, I mean, just it, it's so up in the air. I mean, I would, I'd probably want to just go to the traditional route just to see what it's like, if anything else, right? I think it'd just be interesting. I mean, I tell people, I haven't really told them, but I'll say it right now that if nothing happens out of this, I think it'll just be an interesting experience you have in in life for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's why also, I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I'll just say this is that it reminded me of when you told me um, there's not much you can control. So just focus on writing the best story you can because everything else is kind of a, up in the air for the most part. Well, yeah, I mean, look at it this way. Imagine, um, imagine you're you're meeting these two people. Um, it's, it's two women. They're both sixty-five years old. Two sixty-five-year-old women. They're happy. They're uh, in love. They have beautiful, lovely homes. They're uh, they travel all the time. They have loads of money in the bank and they both uh, have a book that they keep on their mantle at home. And one of those people, um, and both you read both books and you're like, man, those are just two of the best books I've ever read. You know, let's say they're post-apocalyptic. Like those are just two amazing post-apocalyptic books, right? And, and you find out that one of those two women, of those two very happy, very fulfilled, very wealthy, very in love women who wrote amazing books, one of those books was published by Simon and Schuster mm -hmm. uh, to great acclaim. And the other was self-published and four people bought it. One of those people, all of that money that went to buy their lovely house and their private, you know, and their, and their, and their adventures that they go on when they travel, that money came from the book. And the other one, it came from, she started a shoe store. Do you really care at that point? Like if you're that, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it, you, you know, do you, can you imagine yourself going like, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to be one of those two women because even though they're both happy and they're both fulfilled and they're both living well, you know, one of them made, you know, made all that, you know, made their money off a of shoe store and the other made all their money off the book, even though both books are equally good. You know what I mean? Like the external stuff is largely beyond your control and also largely disconnected from from the really important part, which is that both those women, regardless of, you know, despite their wealth or happiness or, or other external things, both wrote an amazing book. And I think that's what, that's ultimately where you have to try to source your joy from because the other stuff will batter you senseless. I mean, I run into this all the time. I swear to God, I, I have to unfollow people who I like and admire and know on Facebook because I don't want to find out. I don't want to see their latest announcement of some success they had with their book that I didn't have with mine. You know, because like you, that, which, you know, brings us back to where we started, right? Which is that notion of you want to feel like you've made it, but you're, ne but you're never going to totally feel like you've made it. I can make myself feel like I've made it. Like if I sit and I just look at my books on the wall and then I think of like the money in my bank account and my 
you know, we live in a nice place and we have good lives, I can go, yes, I feel successful, right? But as soon as I turn my focus outwards to what's going on with my buddy, you know, Nick Eames or Evan Winter in Toronto, who are two, you know, great fantasy authors who are doing really well, I can find myself going, oh, damn it, they're doing this thing or they've got this thing that I don't have. And so, you know, that way lies madness. So that's why the hardest job for me as a, you know, as someone with, you know, like I say, 10 books published, if you take all the books I've had published because of all the languages that they're in, I've had 55 books published around the world, right? Um, and I still, the toughest job for me as an author is sitting down at the, at the computer, writing, even when I feel anxious about whether it's going to be good any, or not. And reminding myself that all of the j real joy, the stuff that really matters is just coming from what I write. The text is the only thing that's real. The rest of it is all luck and privilege and illusion and the random fortunes of the universe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if this is... Uh... <laughs> Okay, this is probably just like further adding on to, and like I, you're probably gonna just repeat yourself after saying this. But um, I remember what like oh, this was when I was starting out, and I knew this guy who um, I'm not gonna go into much detail, but he's probably someone you shouldn't listen to when you take advice for how to be an author. But um, I felt my writing was a little infantile or naive, and. I think he had mentioned something like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I read your book, Trader's Blade, and I read the opening and I was like, oh, that's what he meant. Um, however, uh, after I started reading it, I was like, okay, well, this doesn't, again, seem beyond me. This seems like something I can manage. I do have a question. I mean, to ask this for a while about Trader's Blade. You have a scene which has ballroom with nine tiers where if you're on one tier all you can see are the tiers above you but you can't see the tiers below you how does that work i was getting i got really confused with that no i know i've uh it's so funny i remember my editor asking and i was and, and like how do the physics of that work and i said it's a it's a fantasy novel lady just go with it oh so um, it's actual magic they're using it's not like no no thing you can make in real life no I, I actually did work it out how, how how to make it work before i before i finalized that book um so it's a common it's predominantly a, um because of the way the lights are all angled right so so you know if you have lights aimed sort of upwards then you can't see what's below you like it's just where the shadows are so in other words it's it's like if you're um you know, if you're in a, a theater and there's actors on the stage, you know how, like, if you've ever you know, been on stage as an actor or a musician, the audience can see the the um, the actors or the musicians who are above them because they're they're what's being lit. But the musicians or the actors can't really see the audience; they're just all in shadow. And so the idea in this ducal ballroom in uh, in uh, Riju, which is sort of an exceedingly corrupt um, uh, city. Uh, is that, you know, the nobles, the, the higher up you are, the less you want to see the people below you, but, but you want all the people below you to see you. So it's like the, it's like the reverse of a panopticon, you know, a panopticon is that weird design they made, like invented for like prisons where 
a single prison guard could kind of see all the prisoners in their cells, but the prisoners couldn't ever see each other. Um, it's it's uh, it was it was the idea of this... the panopticon. How do you spell that? Panopticon. I think it's a panopticon. P a n o n o p a n. Yeah, P a n o n o p t i c o n. I c o n. Yeah, it was designed by Jeremy oh, Bentham, okay. a, a Brit. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking it up right now. It's a it's a it's a it's a mechanism. It's a sort of it's an architectural design to um, so that people. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen something like this before. Yeah. So obviously, okay. So, so mine's the are way I'm looking at it right now is it's like obviously if you're a prisoner, all you're seeing is the guard, but the guard can see everyone yeah okay so this this was that in reverse this was these people are so arrogant that they want people to see them but they don't want to have to look at the rabble so they have there's three or four tiers to this ballroom and you know the way the lights are set up is that the higher up you are you're only going to see each other you won't see the people below you but the people at the bottom sort of see everything so they see their betters, so to speak. So yeah, that was the that was the uh, the the ducal ballroom, and that panopticon is almost playing into uh, how our, our what we talked about earlier about the whole doesn't matter what you have, you're always going to see those which have more than you. Ah, it's a shame that you had to unfollow them because it was just really getting to you. Like maybe it's just me, but I take that as a sign of there's something I have yet to master. Like if I can do that and just feel fine for them, not compare myself, there's something I've mastered about myself. Oh, for sure. But I, but I think I think the thing is for me, and again, this gets down to this gets down to what your priority is on any given day. Is my priority that I I need to get good at you know social media especially Facebook is artificially constructed using machine language, machine learning and artificial intelligence to make us feel inadequate. Right. So it has, you know, we, we, we know this. So the question is, do I want to focus myself on overcoming Facebook's integral design of making me feel inadequate or do I want to go, what the hell am I doing watching other people's success or failures when in fact, I should be writing. So the, the older I get and the more, the, the more experienced I get in, in the field of, of being a novelist, the more I try to devote my energies towards recognizing my own flaws, my own failings, my own feelings, you know, my own like whatever, you know, moral inadequacies. Um, and then going, you know what, instead of beating myself up about the fact that with all these books out, I'm still insecure and still have imposter syndrome and envy and all these other things. I'm just going to focus on doing the things that allow me to write. Because when I write a book and when I finish that book and when I see that book, you know, and hold it in my hand, I, that's when I feel like um, I've done what I kind of was meant to do or what I, what I decided I was going to do with my life. Um, so I, prior, I just prioritize on that. And that's kind of what I encourage everyone else to do as well. Like, you know, when we were talking about the not writing business, if going to that conference, if buying that course gets you sitting down and writing, 
then great, then do it. If, if it doesn't, if it just becomes a distraction, then, you know, prioritize on making yourself feel like you can sit down and write. Yeah. Like if it's listening to a certain podcast by someone who <laughs> needs to write, uh, Hey, I say you go out there and you make it happen and you just hit the ground running and, and just turn dreams into reality. People. Uh, I think at this point, it's just my mom and my dad listening, but, uh, Hey, maybe in a year I'll get more people. <gasps> you never know. You never know. Mo you know what, you know, the, just, uh, you just gotta, it's like with, it's like with writing novels, you just gotta create and then, uh, let people find it. Yeah. It's the finding part that I'm struggling with. Cause I've done stuff where I put it out there and it's like a hundred views or a hundred clicks and like, that's it. So, I mean, in my defense, I think I'm not really Mark, like the stuff I'm thinking about right now is I've made a bunch of YouTube videos of the stuff I've made in Lego studio, where it's like just really crazy creations of mine. And I put the video up, I share it on Facebook. And then it's like 10 views, like less than a hundred views. I'm not really marketing that or trying to get it out there. So, um, yeah, I'm going to figure that out though. Once this thing's written and done and I'm going through the process of uh, the traditional publishing processes, which is what it looks like. And then, yeah, I'll uh, see what happens. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe uh, nobody will buy a copy. and It'll be this chapter of my life I mentioned about where they're like, oh, you wrote a novel. Yeah, I wrote a novel. It didn't really go anywhere. So I had to go back into construction or get a real job or something like that. But it's just this chapter of my life. I don't want to be one of those people that like I'm constantly looking at back at things and just being like, oh, I was so full of hope and happiness and just just with the sad remorse. I know I don't want that. I don't know if I'm being coherent or not making sense or uh, just rambling on. No, not at all. But you're describing a problem that's going to solve itself. Like, here's the thing, you know, just go out and make a, and write a great book, man. Like you write, you write a book that's, that's the best book you can write that, that you believe in, that you enjoy when you reading, when you're, when you read it back and everything else kind of is going to do what it does. It's not all within your control. You know, like, it, like everyone who's listening knows that nobody says other than my mother, who was a very strange lady um, when I was a kid who said, um, you know, we need to make money and I need an easy way to make money. So I think the easiest way to make money is writing novels, um, which of course was not true for her. Oddly, it ended up being true, you know, somewhat truer for me, but, um, but that was just, you know, again, luck and circumstance and privilege intersecting. Um, so yeah, you just write something great. I've never met anybody who wrote a book, who wrote a good book, who regretted writing the book regardless of whether the book was successful or not, right? And that's what you're aiming for. All of the, the good things that come out of that, they're all worth it. And, you know, like people, as you say, some people are super busy, they got kids or they got things that they're in the way or they've got health issues and stuff. And people have to, you know, figure out for themselves how best to kind of, you know, fulfill their, their lives. Um, but most people, the decision is not whether to write a book or not write a book. Uh, you know, or, or sacrifice their whole life. The decision is, do I write a book or, I'm gonna, or am I going to watch 
2000 extra episodes of television, right? And my thing is, I've never met anybody who regretted writing the book. Um, I have met and have experienced myself the regret of, oh my God, I can't believe I watched that much television that year. Yeah, uh, I'm at that point where I, I can't even, people binge watch Netflix. I can't even do that. I get too antsy and restless. I just got to do something, right? I got to make progress on, you know, my book or storytelling, or you can only play so many video games and watch so much YouTube before. And this is just, it's, it's me, but before you can, you, you say like, okay, I want to do something productive where I'm creating, I'm making something into existence, which wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Of course. Well, that's it. That's what we're all doing. And, you know, like I said before, when you're sitting at the computer, you know, as far as if an alien, flew, you know, was flying over earth and looking at every single human being with all their super alien knowledge, and they see you sitting at the computer writing a story, and they see me sitting at the computer writing a story, and they see Margaret Atwood at the computer writing a story. From the alien standpoint, we're all the same. We're all doing the same thing, right? The alien doesn't go, oh, yeah, but Margaret Atwood's so much more famous, right? As far as the alien's concerned, we're all storytellers. And they're like, that's cool. Those humans are storytellers. I think, think I'd get, I could get her on the podcast. <laughs> you never just, know. Just random email. Hey, hey, you know, I'm kind of liking these Zoom podcasts. I can just do it from my house. I can get people that don't even live in Vancouver. Um, the sound quality, I did one with Peter on Tuesday. And the sound quality was like professional. I was like, this is fine. They don't have to use that program called Ringer that you're suggesting where I'd have to pay for it. And I'm kind of trying to save money right now because I'm not working. I live off my savings for a while. I don't think she did the podcast. I'd have to wait a while. Um, <laughs> I, I could always just, yeah, I don't know. I already shot off an email to someone that's a bit more established and I'll see what happens. Well, just like, just like I follow him on Facebook. So uh, just said, Hey, I'll just throw this out there. Kind of write a sobby, like, Oh, I'm a struggling author trying to start out. Please help me. Not, not like just like that, but kind of like in the, the guise of it. And that's not a voicemail I'd want to get. I'll tell you that. Oh, um, no, no, no. I, 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 I not, okay. not, not, I didn't call him. I just, it was on. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I just like the voice, this sort of serial killer creeping in the middle of the night voice. Um, most, most authors I know are usually happy to do a podcast, um, you know, when they can. Um, there's, yeah, they're usually all, authors are usually pretty happy to talk about their work and the process of writing. Cool. Um, Hey, you know what I was thinking of? Ah, uh, maybe I think I think I'm gonna say this. I think our last names kind of give credence to our genres because you got De Castel, which is a sophisticated French name, and you're writing swashbuckling fantasy. And then I got it's like my last name is Russian, and so it's kind of a rough name. But I'm also writing post-apocalyptic, so maybe I don't know. Maybe people are like, oh yeah, that's a guy. That's a guy that knows how to write post-apocalyptic because it's like. Oh, I don't know. It's just something I was uh, randomly thinking about. It made sense in my head when I thought of it uh, earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the Russians know hardship. They, uh, they know the, uh, 
they know the post-apocalyptic even before it was apocalyptic yeah well well i mean it like my closest russian ancestry is like my great-grandparents so i mean like i don't think that really qualifies for me um although i think the closest thing i had is like my dad i've mentioned this before my dad i don't think i've mentioned this okay if i haven't i'll mention it now so um my, my dad's uh descended from the, the duke of Boris, and so they've had uh when they came from russia they had their fair amount of hardship like i didn't even know this my own grandparents couldn't vote in this country until the 1960s like there's some weird law they had passed so i mean i'm not going to equate that to the hardship in actual russia but i mean that's a uh, that's it's it's the closest link and connection that i have to it it's just i mean i got some great aunts that are alive i'm pretty sure they could tell me about it but uh it's not something i've <laughs> directly experienced for sure no, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, the thing is the, in terms of, you know, what fires your, your, your artistic impulse and, and what kind of what you draw from, it's not, it's not, it's in, it happens inside the mind. So it's not based on whether, you know, your biology was sufficiently aligned with, you know, someone from 200 years ago or in a particular place, right? We don't know, you know, it just like, you know, I'm sure you've been with someone where they see, you know, they see a car accident, you know, and it's not even a very bad car accident, but they're like super shaken by it, right? Like it just sticks with them all day, sticks with them all week, sticks with them all year. They have nightmares about it. And then you, you might be like, I can't even remember that car accident. Like who cares, right? So that, you know, the former person and the latter person both had the same technical external experience, but the former person might have material for writing a book or a series of books from that emotional reaction. Right. So yeah, it's, it's never about the external stuff. It's just about, you know, you draw from what you draw from. And if you draw from the fact that your name happens to be a certain thing and it makes you feel a certain way when you think about it, then that's plenty. That's as good as, you know, the, that's no different than the person who's, you know, drawing from it because they, you know, spent 20 years studying X, Y, or Z, right? I'm, I'm not trying to equate expertise that way, but in terms of the artistic impulse, right? It can come from anywhere and, and uh, it doesn't have, you don't have to um, authenticate the artistic impulse in that way. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. I hate to say this, but um, but I might have to go because uh, all this talking about writing has uh, left me with the need to get some uh, some writing done. Heck yeah, that's what I that's what I'm here for. Just let's talk about it. It's gotten me uh, all great. I told myself I was going to take some time off, and then today I was like, maybe I should do something, but I couldn't. I was tired. I just didn't feel like it. And then we got to talking about this, uh, and yeah, it's. Uh, Hey, whatever I can do to help. Um, if you're gonna go, tell mm -hmm. everyone out there where they can get all your books. Uh, my books are pretty easy to find. They're in most uh, bookstores and uh, available online from all the the usual suspects from Amazon and Kobo and Barnes and Noble and Fnac in France and you know wherever else. Um, the Great Coats is a swashbuckling adult fantasy series. Um, it's all about sort of idealism and friendship, and there's a certain musketeer vibe to it. 
and Spell Slinger is a young adult fantasy series and it's about kind of uh, self-discovery and discovering that you're not the chosen one and what do you do when it turns out you're not the chosen one and um, there's a murderous stalking squirrel cat in that so you know if that's not enough to entice people to buy it then I don't know what is and then in um, April of this year Way of the Argosi comes out which is a young adult uh, fantasy uh, story the beginning of a duology and then in, I think it's going to be June Play of Shadows which is uh the first of the new series in the Great Coats world is going to be um, happening. And uh, I think that is going to be, uh, um, that was really fun to write because it's a swashbuckling fantasy novel set in a theater. Very cool. So that's my, yeah, that's my, so my 2021 is going to be very busy because I have, and I also have another Argosy book coming out at the end of 2021. So I have three books coming out next year. Cool. Well, everyone, Sebastian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Me uh, starting out. My, 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 this humble uh, novice author who doesn't, doesn't know much. <laughs> but uh, hey, everyone, sorry. none of us, none of us know much. And uh, all we know is, uh, is whatever we last wrote. You're only as good as your last book. So it's okay. We all start back at the same spot. Yeah, for sure. All right, everyone, that's been Sebastian de Castell. I'm Nathan Ogloff, and this has been The Unconventional Author. I'll see you guys in the next episode.